My God is a God of love, not of judgment. I don't believe in the God of judgment in the Old Testament, but the God of mercy in the New Testament. This was said by a woman who came to see me to ask, what does Portland Community Church teach? Her opinion is common. Uh, Many people struggle with Old Testament passages of God's judgment against the people of Israel or other nations around it uh, that like we find in the book of Jeremiah that we've been looking at. Uh, They prefer passages that talk about God's love and kindness and compassion. No question about it. The Bible tells us about a God who loves you and has compassion on you. To stop there, however, is to make God too small. The God's Word tells us that God is not only a God of love, but He's also a God to whom we must all give an account someday. We will all stand before God when the world ends at the time of judgment. This is the eighth in a series of messages called Navigating Uncertainty. I'm talking about how we navigate our uncertain times and how we help other people in our lives to get through these. I mean, we are faced with a pandemic, we have an economic lockdown, we face social unrest, and we have an election. The tumult we have all gone through the last seven months has left us all drained. I don't need to tell you this, whether you're a teenager or in your 90s, married or single or divorced or widowed, a parent or childless, a Christian or not a Christian, you can feel the turbulence in our country. To help us through these difficult times, we have turned to the prophet Jeremiah. He exemplified four things that are needed to lead in uncertain times. Leaders first must provide clarity. No leader can say with certainty what's going to happen in the next few days or few months, but I can tell you with clarity that God is sovereign and He will see you through. Leaders also present choices. God has endowed human beings with choice. Our choices have consequences and they matter. Leaders provide people with two paths and ask people, which path do you want to go down? Third thing, leaders uh, display humanity. Jeremiah loved the people of Judah so much that he constantly cried for them. Uh, We may not know all the answers, but we have to show people that we understand the difficulty they're going through. People will follow leaders if they know that they care about them. Finally, leaders must give hope. Uh, People are desperate for hope today. Jeremiah gave the people of Judah the hope that if they willingly went into exile in Babylon, God would see them through that time and bring them back to the land. The hope we have to offer people is in God through Jesus Christ. He's the hope of the world. Today I want to focus on this fourth element, give hope. There are so many crazy things happening in our city, in our country, our world. Many people are, just want to know, will we ever get through this? George Gallup Jr. writes, Many of the problems we have today are not new. We sometimes think we're, we're the first ones to face these kind of things. He says, no. What is new 
is the intensity with which they demand our attention. Journalists estimate that a major breaking news story happens every six hours. So some news story hits and you says, this is the biggest thing I've heard all year. This is game over. And within six hours, another story comes along that swats it to the sidelines. We feel jerked this way and that until we're exhausted. The hope we offer the world is God in Christ. We invite people to put their hope in God. Jeremiah tells the people of Judah to put their hope in God. But it's not enough for people to put their hope in God. When you put your hope in God, make sure you put your hope in the real God. Some people say, I want a God of love. I don't want a God of judgment. I find in Jeremiah three truths that reveal to us the real God. First, God is sovereign over all nations. Jeremiah writes, The word of the Lord, the word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah, the prophet, said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Jeremiah tells us exactly when this was written. This is 603 B.C. Jeremiah has been serving God as a prophet for 23 years. He was called into prophetic service in 626 B.C. He serves uh, for 20 years under King Josiah, a good king, for three months under King Jehoahaz, a bad king, and now for three years under King Jehoiakim, another bad king. And he continues to minister until after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So he's at the midpoint of his career. Jeremiah 25 begins with a message of judgment to the people of Judah. Then in Jeremiah 25, verses 12 to 38, God turns his attention to the nations around Judah. And I want to talk about them for a few minutes. After the people of Judah are taken into Babylon, Jeremiah foretells that God will judge Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. He also says he will judge Egypt. I think we all know where that is. Uh, he says he'll judge the Philistines. That's the western coast of Israel. Uh, he's going to judge uh, people of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. That would be modern-day Jordan. Uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, and Arabia, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And then he adds, and all kingdoms on earth. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. I don't think anybody for a moment thinks this is true. Who's going to overthrow the mighty Babylon, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt? declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Babylon was the nation God used to discipline Judah. God says of Babylon, you are my war club. They now must stand trial for their sins. When uh, 
Uh, who would dream that mighty Babylon would ever be overthrown? But these prophecies are fulfilled down to the tiniest details, giving us evidence that God's word is supernaturally given. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. Now, showing that this God's word is supernatural, this alliance of great nations was not even formed when Jeremiah gave this prophecy. This was uh, the Medes and the Persians formed an alliance after he made this prophecy. They will take up their positions against her, and from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty-handed. Later, after this, Babylon is leveled by uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander, clearly, at this point, was not even born. If God was using Babylon to punish Judah, why would he punish them? Well, God tells us, because, this is talking to Babylon, you rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance, because you frolic like a heifer, threshing grain and nay, like stallions. God used them to punish Judah, but the Babylonians went too far and had too much fun doing it. They destroyed Judah with huge grins on their faces. Listen to the fugitives and the refugees from Babylon declaring in Zion how the Lord our God has taken vengeance. Vengeance for his temple. The cherry on the top sin of Babylon was destroying the temple. God wanted them to overthrow Jerusalem and uh, take people into captivity. But why destroy the beautiful temple? God also punished them for their arrogance. See, I am against you, O arrogant one, talking about Babylon, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty, for your day has come, the time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around her. Now, the Babylonians did not credit God for the victory. They gave themselves all the praise. Next, we read how the fall of Babylon came about. A draught on her waters. They will dry up. The Euphrates River flowed into Babylon. They had this elaborate system of canals. They also had huge, massive walls around it. Uh, the people thought that they were always going to be safe. Then in 540 B.C., Cyrus, uh, the king of uh, the Medes and the Persians, had a stroke of genius. He diverted the Euphrates River so that his soldiers could walk into Babylon on dry riverbed. One night, when the Babylonian nobles were uh, celebrating with lots to drink and revelry, Cyrus and his troops walked in under the walls on the dry riverbed. They killed the king of Babylon and took the city without any fight. Jeremiah goes on, Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, 
through which no man travels. Then say, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. It will be desolate forever. That prophecy has been fulfilled. No one has ever again lived where Babylon was. God's prophecies always come true. The Medes and Persians captured Babylon in 539 BC, some 64 years after prophecy made that after Jeremiah made that prophecy. But they don't destroy the city. Remember, they walked in on dry riverbed, took it without a fight. It was Alexander in 330 BC who turned Babylon into a heap of ruins. I will punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him, and the wall of Babylon will fall. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled, and her high gates set on fire. So the walls were leveled, and the gates were made of wood, and they were set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the fire. He says, all your efforts in making this wall and these gates was for nothing. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gate set on fire. The people, I already read that. Um, so Babylon's walls were so huge, the people assumed no one could overthrow them. Jeremiah wants us to know that God is sovereign over Judah, over Babylon, and over all nations. Because God rules over all nations, our founders recognize the importance of all people worshiping God. Uh, over 90% of the signers of our Declaration of Independence were born-again Christians. Even two of America's least overtly religious founders, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, made clear their belief that freedom of religion was a prerequisite to the establishment of a governing order. Madison said, this right is in its nature an unalienable right. Jefferson wrote, all attempts to influence it by temporal punishment or burdens are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. And Benjamin Franklin says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs, that God is sovereign in the affairs of men. Nations that defy God and what God teaches in His Word eventually suffer for it. Let's give an example. How about Russia? They began their experiment with communism in 1917. They did well for a while. Some would say they did very well. But when their uh, regime disintegrated in the late 80s, Russia has never recovered. How about China? Now, this is simply my opinion. If they continue their anti-God policies, embracing atheism, and their anti-Christian policies. They persecute Christians because they don't trust them. They think too independently. And their anti-freedom policies, 
I don't believe China's future will be as bright and long as some people think. People who claim to know him but who refuse to obey also suffer for it. In fact, the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. Vance Habner says, After all, we are not judged so much by how many sins we have committed, but by how much light we have rejected. No nation was blessed more than Israel. But the blessing brought chastening because they sinned against a flood of light. Our nation, too, has received a flood of light. It isn't enough for us to put in God we trust on our currency or to mention God in our pledge to the flag or tip our hat to God in quoting a verse in a political campaign speech. It's obedience, not religion, that exalts a nation. Most of us have been privileged to hear God's word, maybe on the radio, watch it on TV. Some of us grew up going to Sunday school. Many of us have multiple Bibles in our homes. Some of us have sat under good teaching. The more light we are given, the more God expects of us. Are you bearing fruit in proportion to the light you've received? God is sovereign over all nations. Are you worried about what is happening in the United States? God is sovereign over this country. Are you concerned about China? God's sovereign over it too. Are you stressed about Iran? God is sovereign over it too. God is sovereign over all nations. Second, God is a God of love and judgment. Lots of people want to believe in the God of love of the New Testament, but want nothing to do with the God of judgment in the Old Testament. What most people who want to dismiss the Old Testament don't realize, however, is that the wrath of God that we find in the Old Testament moves right into the New Testament. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took the cup of wrath and drank it for us. Jesus takes the full judgment of God against sin on himself and absorbs it. God does not do away with the judgment in the, Old, uh, in the Old Testament in the New Testament. He sends the full force of His judgment against His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Christ takes the judgment for us. At the cross, the love and judgment of God meet. Jeremiah foretells Christ's coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, that's Jesus Christ, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. When you think, find yourself thinking there's no judgment of, of God in the New Testament, take another look at the cross. For it was there that God, the full wrath of God's judgment fell on Jesus Christ. We're deceived that if we think God no longer cares about sin and holiness. God has not lowered His standard. 
If anyone has lowered the bar, it's us. In our culture today, tolerance is our highest value. A recent survey found that only 28% of Americans believe in moral absolutes. We've given up on the idea that there's a standard of right and wrong. Socrates said, you will never know a line is crooked unless you put it next to a straight line. A survey in Russia among 13 to 17-year-old girls found 74% say that their occupation of choice is prostitution. How could that happen? It's because we've lost the straight line. God is a God of love. He sent His Son to die for us. God is also a God of judgment. He sent His judgment on His Son. The God of love is also the God of judgment. Third, and this is the title of my message today, God is a God of second chances. Jeremiah writes, After Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials, the craftsmen and the artisans of Judah, were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is a reference to the first deportation from Judah and started in 597 and worked into 596. Jeremiah prophesies that the Babylonians will conquer Judah and take many of the people of Judah into captivity. He counsels the people, if you want to survive, don't resist. Don't fight or you'll be killed. Don't flee to, like, to Egypt, you'll be killed. Go voluntarily with Nebuchadnezzar into uh, Babylon. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs. Uh, Jeremiah wrote many uh, word pictures so we could picture them. Placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very poor figs, so bad they could not be eaten. This is what the Lord... The God of Israel says, like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good. This is people like Daniel and Ezekiel. And I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. God gave the people of Judah who went into exile his blessing, and he gave them a second chance to return to the land and come to him. God foretold of the hope that would be realized by the Jews that submitted to Nebuchadnezzar and went into exile. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. In other words, they're going to repent in exile. They will ask the way to Zion. It was uh, Cyrus, uh, the king of the Medes and Persians, who said, uh, you can leave Babylon and now go back to your country and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. 
and caused them to roam on the mountains. Remember, they would worship God on the mountaintops to false idols, false gods. They wandered over the mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. God used the time in Babylon to chasten a repentant people. Now, these repentant Jews became the leaders of the new nation of Judah and uh, became the people prepared to receive His Son, Jesus Christ. God gave them a second chance. The fact that God gives second chances and is gracious is one of the reasons I think Americans like comeback stories, don't we? When somebody blows it, you know, maybe they get fired, maybe they get divorced, maybe they get in trouble with the law, even go to jail or prison, and then they come back and do great things. That's why it's kind of sad in recent years that a new subculture has grown up where if you're not on board, if you say the wrong thing, if you made a tweet once, everybody's like picking up to throw the first stone. It's so odd. It's so different from our former American culture where we were happier to give people second chances. Our new swarming culture is threatening free speech. It's particularly threatening the free speech of businesses. Businesses begin with one primary purpose, to make a profit. This means corporations are both risk-averse and conformity-driven. This sort of risk-averse and conformity-driven culture is in direct conflict with our culture of free speech. Corporations are particularly susceptible to swarming tactics. Better to fire an employee who didn't do anything wrong or drop a product line that you've had no problem with than to face the wrath from a group that threatens to marshal a boycott against your company. So you may look at the division in our country and say, what can I do to change things? There is something you can do. Listen to James Lincoln Collier in his book, The Rise of Selfishness in America. A damaged society cannot be improved by tinkering with monetary policy or in somehow changing the system. This is so important. It is critically important for us to understand that there is no such thing as a system. A society can only be improved when those who constitute it decide to improve it. And this means making sacrifices individual by individual for the good of the whole. A government cannot legislate against the indulgent self. You know, something goes wrong and we think, well, we need to pass a new law. He says, no, only the people acting from the springs of their own hearts can do that. Will they? That is a question I cannot answer. Change always begins with the individual. You maybe feel powerless to change Washington, D.C. or to change Salem. But you can do something to change yourself. Nations turn toward degradation one sin at a time. And they turn to holiness in just the same pattern. One step at a time. 
The problem with evil is not that it's just out there. We tend to think of evil as, you know, the other guys. Evil is in here. It's in your life and my wife, my life. The best way to change our country is to put our hope in God and ask Him to change us. When you pay, put your hope in God, make sure you put your hope in the real God. Who's the real God? The real God is sovereign over all nations. You're worried about our country? You're concerned about China? God is sovereign over both of them. The real God is a God of love and judgment. God's judgment was meted out against His Son on the cross. The reason God is able to be merciful to us is because His judgment was pressed on Christ. And the real God is a God of second chances. Since God is a God of second chances, that means it's not too late to give your life to Christ. You can do that right now. And since God is a God of second chances, make sure you give other people second chances. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. We want to come back to you. We thank you that you are sovereign over all nations. We don't need to get all tied up about what's happening in our world. We thank you that you're a God of love and judgment. You not only love us, but you require holiness and obedience. May we do that. And we thank you that you give us second chances. Help us to do that and give other people second chances. Why don't you pray right now? Wherever you are, commit your life to Jesus. If you've never given your life to Him, invite Him to come into your life and forgive your sin. And commit yourself to Him to trust Him and give other people second chances. You pray. Father, we pray for our country. We pray for our citizens as we vote. Give us your wisdom. And Father, we pray for what happens after the election. We pray for peace, that you would be merciful to our country and uh, your grace would be showered upon us. Thank you for being with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.